one of the biggest things that we've learned um, is that once we started the market research to understand what our customers needing and what is the, the pain point that we're trying to address, we always ask customers what they don't like about their current products and ask them what would they like our products to do or would you consume a product that does something which you know gives you a lot of answers that you kind of want to hear hi welcome to forbes india's the daily tech conversation where we bring you insights from tech entrepreneurs cxos and investors from around the world whose work has a bearing on india i'm hariyarakli and my guest today is ariel asharaf co-founder and ceo of coralogics an israeli data observability startup that sets itself apart with its technology for analyzing data in stream rather than after it's been stored in this episode ariel talks about takeaways from the early years of the company when they came close to shutting shop changing roles from chief product officer to ceo an innovative indo israeli initiative and a 142 million dollar fundraise that was closed in just a month Ariel thank you so much for making time for this podcast welcome to this conversation with Forbes India and and um, tell us a little bit about uh, you know the the story of Corelogics to start with the reason i ask is also that i came across some really interesting uh, things about your journey and i think which has now a lot of relevance for you know some of the startups in india as well especially given that you know entering some kind of a funding downturn and so on so tell us about how you all got to start the company and we'll go from there Of course, thank you. So, um, we started a company in 2015. Um, the initial idea was to provide an observability platform or logging platform at the point um, that was more aimed to be um, an easier or more um, intuitive alternative to uh, who then control the market's flunk. <clears throat> And um, what happened is that. with with time we kind of learned that we try to come with the same approach as the larger competitors being a very small vendor um it's going to be very hard to compete so even though we had some really nice machine learning algorithms and some nice capabilities that we built on top of the data um customers were reluctant to really make a switch and rely on us because you know logging is part of the critical infrastructure of the organization and uh it took us a while to understand that we tried a few iterations it's interesting because we actually had a really good launch um mm. product in like i think it was summer of 2015 uh we even won the most promising startup of the israeli intelligence unit 8200 which is a very prestige uh gift or prestige uh, uh award mm. and um we had a lot of signups but then when people tried the product itself and the platform You know, obviously, there were things that we didn't know how to cover that the bigger players did, and really prevented us from from gaining that initial traction we needed. Mm. So it kept going like this, and at the end of 2017, we found ourselves with almost no customers, no revenue. Mm. The company was really in a position where, practically, you know, a, a lot of the the board gave up on the company and uh, kind of said, you know. Just play with what you have. We were five people, quarter of a million dollars in a bank. Um, play with what you have. Do your best, and good luck. They were very um, elegant about it, I'd say, and there was no hard feelings or anything like that. But they understand, you know, that's the business. But 
no one was intending to really try to lift the company at that point. And what happened is that after the CEO and CTO left, I was one of the co-founders, but not the CEO. I was the chief product officer. Mm. So not, not neglecting my responsibility, obviously, for the fact that the product was not a good fit for the market at that point. And uh, definitely part of that. And I've learned a lot. Um, I became CEO and uh, Yoni became the CTO. Um, we started running the company a little differently, uh, mainly decided to start moving workloads to be analyzed in the stream. So that's till today, by the way, the main differentiator of CoreLogix versus other products. Everyone analyzed from the storage and we analyze in stream. That mm -hmm. gives better performance, better scale, but also dramatically lower costs than other competitors in the market. Mm -hmm. And within a few months, we reached, I think it was $10,000 a month, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice uptake from zero, but still relatively, relatively nothing uh, for a company that's at that point more than three years old. Mm -hmm. But the board saw something in there and decided to give us an extension um, of a couple million so we can try to run the company um, and, you know, mini scale it. And what happened ever since is pretty interesting because, you know, with the market trends and our work and the, the, a lot of the initial customers that trusted us and decided to bet on us and our approach, uh, we managed to grow significantly and ended that year at almost a million dollars in revenue. And ever since, you know, things picked up and we more than double ourselves every single year and uh, to the point where... CoreLogix today is, is in tens of millions and serving over 1,500 customers, um, mainly with the same vision of analyzing everything in stream. Now it broadened from logs to logs, metrics, tracing, and security information, for which we decided to actually, and that, that's one that's interesting, specifically for our context, for security, we decided to build a separate unit, a separate venture inside CoreLogix. Um, and that venture is called Snowbit. And what's unique about this venture is that it's, it's the first ever um, Israel-India joint product. Um, mm. and it has an exec in India and an exec in Israel and hiring both engineering and sales and support and solutions and product. It's all done in a unified way. There's no real separation. India-Israel, you know, utilizing the, the advantage of Israel in cybersecurity and the knowledge that a lot of people bring from their intelligence unit service, uh, you know, including myself, and that's my background. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the the real interesting position of India becoming the the hub for cyber globally. Mm -hmm. Just for some context as well, also because we have a fairly large number of you know the more general audience as well. Maybe you could step back and uh, explain to us in simple terms. Know what uh, this whole idea of uh, data observability is, uh, and and why it's important. Yeah. So, simply put, you know, every time you use a software, and and we're in a world today that there's, I think, obviously, anyone listening to this podcast uses the software to, to broadcast that that podcast. And um, every time you use that, there's there's a lot of work being done in the background to ensure the quality, to ensure the performance to ensure the stability, to ensure the security of that service. And the way that this is done is being uh, uh, analyzing the data that the software and the infrastructure and the network generates. Mm -hmm. If you think about log data, for instance, 
Log data is like the diary of your software. Everything your software does, it writes down to the diary. And if you come a day later and you figure something went wrong, you can read that diary and understand what exactly went wrong and fix it. Metric information and tracing information is more about performance. So performance would be the time it took you to load this podcast from the minute, from the second you clicked on the here podcast. Um, latency can be, you know, lag in the, the sound itself if, uh, if there's some sort of performance or network issue. And obviously security, we don't want anyone breaching into our accounts. We don't want anyone being able to steal our private information. So <clears throat> in order to get a full coverage for a company at scale, and, you know, CoreLogic serves some of the largest companies in, in India, particularly, you know, the, some of the largest fintechs, the largest streaming platforms, the largest ticketing platforms, the largest uh, uh, um, electronic banks. So uh, when you're a large-scale organization, think of how much data you produce. Even a single user, when you enter your bank account and, you know, seemingly you're not doing much, right? You're loading your account data, you're looking at your... Uh, deposits, maybe you're transferring money to someone, maybe you're buying a stock. Those actions generate huge amounts of data. Um, every action you take involves multiple services and uh, different uh, uh, vendors that are involved. There's a, the, the, maybe the credit card vendor, maybe, maybe another bank that you transfer the money to, maybe some sort of broker that transfers that money and charges for it. Um, and all of those are producing logs and metrics. Um, so all of those are something that we want to track. So you entering your bank account get a good experience. Problem is, it is uh, that that amount of data is hard to maintain. It's hard to provide the engineer with the right way to look at the data, extract insights from the data. You know, if you continue with our bank account example, imagine how many people log into a, a website of one of the larger banks in, in India. If you want to track all these people, you've got to have someone that helps you search, visualize, parse that data, maybe extract automatic insights, like telling you, hey, in this city, um, a lot of customers are having a hard time logging into their account. So being able to do all of that requires a lot of uh, resources, a lot of compute. But that's very expensive. And so if I need to pay for your bank transfer, I need to pay a significant portion to just monitor that it's working right, my unit economics or my ability to earn money is damaged. So CoreLogic helps both in the performance and the insights, but also reduces the cost that uh, data observability dramatically so that you can still monitor all your users, give them great experience without being uh, uh, damaged economically. And you mentioned that uh, what sets you apart is that your technology uh, has a way of uh, looking at data before it's put in storage and I guess before it's indexed and things like that. So tell us a little bit about how you hit upon this idea, why it makes a difference. Yeah. So what happens is that we started scaling um, and we looked at, at the data that customers produce and what they do with that data. And everything needs to be observed. Everything needs to be visualized. If there's something abnormal, you have to uh, get alerted and be proactive about it. On the other hand, a lot of the data just 
was just stored in very expensive indexes, in expensive disks, and replicated, you know, just to keep it uh, uh, resilient to crashes and stuff. And the ability to really extract insights from that data was limited, and most of it was not really interesting. So that combined with the fact that storage is the least fast evolving part today, one of the least fast evolving parts of hardware, meaning um, it's not it's not easy to auto scale storage, it's not easy to uh, uh, get you know, new storage capabilities or just like your uh, uh, new processors every other day from the big vendors, AMD and Intel and Nvidia. We found that storage became that, that part of data or that part of data analysis that is the most expensive, the slowest and the least stable one. So mm -hmm. the problem now was, okay, I wanna analyze everything in real time, but if I only analyze in real time, how can I give you insights that are based on long-term trends, right? Because I wanna give you an insight like, hey, you know, if you think about security, hey, someone logged in to your bank account at an hour that is really abnormal. And I've never seen you logging in at 4 a.m. Maybe that is something that your bank will wanna notify you about and send you a text, hey, someone's transferring money 4 a.m. That's strange. But if you don't store the data of you know, the past month, how can you tell me that this never happened this month? Mm -hmm. So we came up with uh, an idea of building all our services, all the software that we built that analyzes the data, knows how to only store the state, meaning storing aggregations and summary on the data instead of storing the raw data. Think about this as if you're um, a bouncer at a party now and a thousand people walk in, if you had a way to categorize every person walking in, height, uh, his, uh, what he's wearing, his sex and so on and so forth. Um, and, and I came in, you know, half an hour later and I said it was a robbery or anything else. And we know that someone with a yellow shirt, blue shoes and long hair is, is the, the criminal. You already have everything written down. You can tell me, okay, I have two people like that. They're sitting right there. But if you hadn't done that, if you worked according to the old architecture, you just let everyone in. And then when I come and ask that, you've got to go back in and search for those people. So by creating that pre-intelligence on the data, before you send it, or before you even, you know, even if you choose to store it, you still have that pre-info, you're improving both the performance, so you can answer my question a lot faster, but also the time and, and the cost, because you know your time costs money. And if I send you there to look for those two people for half an hour, and you can pay for that, unlike when you just answer me right off the bat. Now, the only question is how fast can you categorize everything and every single person walking in and still not create a traffic jam at the, at the entry to the, the, that party? So we constantly have to utilize our services to be able to analyze tens of millions of records every second, all in real time, without having to ask anything from the storage afterwards. Mm. And does much of this happen in an automated fashion? Yeah, that's a good point. So we have some machine learning capabilities to cluster data, detect 
anomalies, understand what are unique records and so on. Um, having that said, there's, there's a whole profession of DevOps and mm. it's called site reliability engineers. And mm. those people know their business best. They know exactly what's abnormal, what's normal, what they're expecting and uh, what is the service level agreement that they commit to for their customers. So those people, we give them a lot of tools to build. We get a lot of tools to build those alerts, basically, those conditions for which they'll be triggered and they'll be sent with a notification telling them exactly where to look. So we augment that with machine learning, but the profession of DevOps engineers and SRE is still one of the most critical ones for scaling companies. And they're always going to be needed there to set the right rules and alerts and be able to respond to them. Mm. Tell us a bit more uh, about the business side of things in the sense that uh, give us a snapshot of uh, your funding. I know you all have just announced uh, a big round of funding. Uh, you know, how fast are you growing? You said you've been doubling, I think, every year. Uh, so, Actually, yeah, more than that. So we're, the, the latest funding round is about $142 million. That brought our total funding to 238. Uh, what's interesting about, you know, I, I spoke about the history of the company and the, the uptake that we had. Out of those 238, um, 225 were in the past, what, 22 months. Mm. So it's been, it's been a very interesting uh, accelerated growth that we've been experiencing. And the nice thing about it is that growth is not declining as we scale because a lot, of, you know, it's much easier to go from $1 to $2 then needs to go from a million to two and from 10 to 20. But mm -hmm. we're, we're managing to sustain our growth at the same pace and the, the market continued to evolve with us. And there's a lot more demand for a product like ours because data grows so dramatically. Mm -hmm. and so we've grown our manpower from 12 people in mid-2019 to almost 200 now, three years later. And um, our revenue is, is, like I mentioned, growing... Um, actually over 150% in the past 12 months mm. at scale at mm. over 10 million or over tens of millions. So we're talking about a company that is now able to produce insights and provide service to over 1500 paying accounts and already has offices in 10 countries in yeah, 10 countries. So, uh, and that by the way, includes uh, India and Singapore and soon Indonesia and soon Japan. A lot of the, the investment is going to APAC and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So in, with the latest uh, funding, uh, given that, you know, obviously, you know, these funding ra raises, they take time, there'll be talks and negotiations. and But also given that uh, there is some kind of a downtown now, uh, you know, in terms of funding, did this take longer? Uh, what kind of conversations happened before this was finalized? This is a very interesting question. So... Um, CoreLogix managed to finalize this round with, uh, in under a month mm. and the closing was uh, the first week of May. So we're talking about a very recent round um, already into the, the downturn of funding. Um, VCs are still investing and they still have money mm. and they're still looking for interesting things. There's no doubt that, you know, technology is only it's in, in its beginning and there is so much more growth space for uh, interesting technology companies and cloud computing. What happens is that VCs are more selective now. They're looking for must-have products, not nice-to-have products. 
they're looking for deep tech, actual technology that brings change that has real IP in it. Mm. And they're looking for companies that are effective economically, they're companies with uh, what's called good unit economics. What it means is um, their marketing and sales spend is generating positive yield or good ROI, return on investment. Um, their uh, sales are producing them you know, money, revenue. A lot of companies used to sell at loss price just to show growth. But if you sell at a decent margin that allows you to actually be uh, profitable on the sale itself, not even as a company, then you know, VCs that are seeing this uh, a real deep tech company that is an infrastructure product that everyone needs, that has good unit economics, that is growing fast. There's a lot of thirst in the market. And we had a lot of opportunities or a lot of options to choose from in this round. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about you know, this idea of what people are looking for in the context of your early experience you said the initial three, four years, uh, you you know, a bit of a struggle. You got to a point where you spent most of your seed money and so on. What yeah. are some of the biggest takeaways from that experience? And and later on, you got to a point where suddenly you, know, you got this, you know, what what you all call a product market fit, I guess. And then you grew really fast. So you can talk about the biggest takeaways from both these experiences. That's good. That's a very good point. I think. One of the biggest things that we've learned um, is that once we started the market research to understand what our customers needing and what is the, the pain point that we're trying to address, we always ask customers what they don't like about their current products and ask them what would they like our products to do or would you consume a product that does something, which, you know, gives you a lot of answers that you kind of want to hear. Mm. If I ask you on every single product that you're using, you know, what do you don't like about it? There'll, there'll be something, nothing's perfect. And if I give you a big promise and I say, you know, our systems can automatically detect anomalies, do you want to use it? You'll say yes. I mean, yeah, of course. But we didn't ask two harder questions that I think we've learned later. First one being, what do you have in the current product that you're not willing to give up? Mm. So what is it that, that dictates the minimum that we should provide to you? And number two is, would you be willing to switch or maybe pay for both products? So everyone wants anomaly detection. Everyone are unhappy with something with their product. That doesn't mean that they can ditch that product. That doesn't mean that they can rely on you instead of that, that doesn't mean that they're willing to pay both. What we found is even though we had some added value, that, you know, that goes a little bit against the concept of lean startup. Um, lean startup means create an MVP, the minimum viable product. But I always say, you know, a scooter is an MVP of a car. That's the minimum <laughs> viable product for a car. It takes you from one place to another. If you have a full car, but it's lacking two wheels, that's not an MVP of a car. That, that can't go anywhere. So really focusing and building something that users can use and are willing to pay for and can take them from point A to B is something that I think we haven't done properly. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, the from 2018 onwards uh, what was sort of the single most important feature or you know aspect of uh, your, your product that really you know helped it take off i think that the the largest uh, or the biggest thing that we've done was the architecture flip to analyze in stream because it affected everything that we provide it affected all the features that we created afterwards it affected the performance it affected the stability of the platform it affected the, the type of customers we attract we attract more advanced engineers that are looking for a vision something that can you know support their efforts long term and scale with them and also it affected our pricing models so i think <laughs> taking that risk you know a company that doesn't have a lot of resources and have one last sh last shot and instead of trying to do small uh, gradual incremental things do something substantially different which is completely changing the architecture serving the same product almost only with complete other a different architecture i think that bold move that we took maybe knowing that this is our last shot and you know otherwise we're going to shut down anyway i think that that completely changed the course of things mm. and for you as well i would imagine it was a significant change going from chief product officer to ceo i mean i guess in the first role you could probably indulge in your passion for technology in a more pure sense but as ceo you have a whole new set of stakeholders and this compliance and what not how was that transition for you um i think a product chief product officer if you get it right it's almost like a mini ceo of a young company mm. because you dictate the roadmap you speak to the customers you speak to the investors you work with r&d to deliver you think about what's the mvp what's going to be the messaging of the company many times so i think that that really prepped me well and and 3 years in is a lot but obviously i've learned a lot throughout the past 4 years um more on the i'd say business hygiene part of things how do you also run financials relationship with the investors how do you run the board properly how do you set kpis and then as we scale how do you manage sales how do you manage go to market how do you measure sales and marketing productivity so i think that that was the the, the biggest change that i needed or the biggest switch that i needed to make is to start measuring everything so everything has to be uh measurable um scalable and repeatable if you really want to build a big company every things that succeed as a one offs are typically you know they're great but they're hard to to establish a company upon so those those are the main three things that i've learned that are that are key and you know obviously still a learning process and continue to improve but measurable scalable and repeatable Mm. All right. Um, give us a sense of uh, you know the direction in which CoreLogics uh, is evolving uh, as a company and as a technology provider, uh, and maybe you can also talk about uh, your biggest priorities over the next twelve eighteen months. Yeah. So uh, CoreLogics is is a data platform, and this ability we have to analyze data in stream without having to store it. is something that can be applied to any data type. So at the end of the day, 
will be a backbone for data analysis for the organization. There's log data, metrics, tracing, security information, business information, marketing information, maybe HR information. It doesn't even matter. We're able to transform that data, enrich that data, detect abnormalities in that data, uh, send that data to any archive, read directly from that archive when needed. Those are generic capabilities that we offer. Uh, if we look at the next 12, 18 months, we're continuing to evolve our platform to apply with more use cases. Logs, metrics, tracing, security, APM, user monitoring, um, helping building more solutions, improving our integrations, improving our ability to read data from various news sources, improving our documentation, but also sustaining what we're doing right. This is one of the things that CoreLogix promises all its customers and delivers. 24-7 support and under a minute response time. So as you scale with thousands of customers, it becomes a real challenge. How do you answer thousands of customers in under a minute? And you know, that's that's part of our 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 commitment now to customers that once we've done this round, we're not gonna neglect the, re the treatment that they had got as you know customers of a smaller company of a startup. And we're gonna continue sustaining that. Um, service level of under a minute response time. That's for the, the short midterm and of course long term is that bigger vision I mentioned about being the data uh, 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 platform or the backbone of data in the organization. Excellent. Uh, Ariel, many thanks again uh, for making time for this uh, insightful conversation for me. I definitely hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Harry. That's it for this conversation. You can find all our podcasts at ForbesIndia.com and on your favorite podcast apps. I'm Hari Arakali. Thank you for listening.